Okay, welcome to day 23 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 45, verse 1 through chapter 47, verse 12, then Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 10, and Matthew 16, verses 1 through 20. Okay, so we saw yesterday how Judah, of all of the brothers, has stepped forth and offered this heart-wrenching, amazing speech to Joseph that is both tragic and beautiful in offering himself in the place of uh, Benjamin, despite the fact that his father has this, showers this unbelievable, completely unfair amount of favoritism on the brother, on the the, the sons of Rachel, um, on Joseph and Benjamin. And in seeing this, right, and, and not only this, the fact that the brothers came back after Joseph gave them a chance to get rid of Benjamin, he realizes that something has changed. Things are not as they were before, and things could have gone a significantly different way had Judah not done what he did and not said what he did. Uh, but he did, and uh, Joseph now, as a result, is himself overcome with emotion and like he has before, he um, he can't control himself, and we think, you know, is he going to leave the room and break down and cry again? Um, but instead he cries, make everyone go out from me. And so no, no one stayed with him. And then you have this, like, foreshadowing of what's immediately about to happen when Joseph made himself known to his brothers— so that's about what's what's about to go down. And so there is Joseph now breaking down and crying once again, so loud that the Egyptians can hear it from a, another room or maybe even another uh, building. The household of Pharaoh, it said, it's heard it. And and he just has this <laughs> these these words that are just must have just come like a bolt of lightning. Right. And it's it's not a lot of speech. He's crying. He could just get it out of his mouth. I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And it says, not surprisingly, that his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like, that's the last thing in the world they possibly could have imagined that this guy would say to him, to them. I think it's also a little bit interesting, is my father still alive? Well, the speech that Judah just gave, uh, clearly he's portraying his father as still alive. Right, I mean, he's going to be devastated if we don't bring Benjamin back to him. Well, he's got to be alive to be devastated. And really, I think this is one of two things. Uh, either uh, Joseph doesn't know what to believe um, because uh, he, he views his brothers as dishonest people, um, although his emotional breakdown, it appears that he's he's seen some glimmer of integrity in them. So maybe not that. I'm kind of inclined towards thinking that that question is one of those statements, though it's framed as a question, kind of means something different. Um, So like, for example, if you see like a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, you might say, is it really you? You know, like you're not really asking that question. This is just a way of of expressing the um, extreme emotion and happiness that you uh, that you are feeling uh, at the sight of a of a friend you haven't seen in a while. So something like that. Then Joseph calls his brothers to him, and they come near. Like, what else are they going to do? And at this point, 
you've got to think, and, and apparently we do end up seeing a little later on in the narrative, that these guys must think, all right, the one who's been kind of messing with us all along is Joseph, and he is this extremely powerful man now, uh, and we wronged him like we did. Like, they know the history. They've been talking about it, uh, you know, still hanging on their conscience. Um, they must have thought that that they were going to die at this point, that he was going to do something horrible, maybe sell them into slavery or something. And as, as I think I mentioned the other day, you know, it's been a long time, like 20 years or so since Joseph has been sold into slavery. Um, he looks significantly different, but you could just imagine them trying to, like, remember his face. It's not like they had pictures, right, for, um, to, to, to remember what exactly what people looked like or anything. Um, so, you know, just like examining his face and being like, yes, can it possibly be? And, um, and then he starts giving more details. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. So totally accountable for the wrongdoing. Um, there's no excusing their actions or just cloaking the wrong that they've done in some thin veneer of, of forgiveness. Um, you know, oftentimes forgiveness can be used that way to just like brush aside the hard stuff we have to talk about. Like, oh, I just forgive you. No, you, you should forgive, but you should also be able to acknowledge wrong that's been done. And um, there should be an honest conversation about that. Um, whom you sold into Egypt. That's an interesting identifier, right? Like he, he could have been like, you know, the, the guy who had the fan, the one who had the fancy coat or, you know, dad's favorite, something like that. But no, whom you sold into Egypt. Um, but, and then you get this first glimmer of where Joseph's head is at. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he tells them how the famine is severe and there are yet five years to come. They Maybe they're wondering if they're not so shocked that they can't think. Maybe they're wondering, how does he know that? Um, there's going to be yet five years of it. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth, to keep alive for you many survivors, right? So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And and this this idea will be revisited in chapter 50 when we get there in um, kind of the better-known um, uh, statement to this effect. But notice what Joseph is saying here. Full acknowledgement of their moral responsibility um, for the actions that they did. And yet, in their doing that, God was doing something too. Namely, he was sending, he w God was sending. They were selling, God was sending. In that act of selling, Right? This is a tremendous example of how God uses even the sinful and evil actions of his creatures in order to accomplish his purposes. Um, and uh, Joseph goes on explaining what we already know, that he's made me a father to Pharaoh, a lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt, and go and, go and tell dad about this. Go and tell and he doesn't say your father anymore, now it's my father. Um, thus, And not only that, not only tell him all this stuff, but tell him that I say, come to Egypt, dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you. Um, and again, 
there's going to be five years of famine yet to come. So it's definitely in your best interest. If you're not going to do it out of love, do it out of self-preservation. And then after he's made clear what he wants them to, to say to Jacob, um, he goes and first um, embraces his brother Benjamin, cries on him, and then he goes to his other brothers and he kisses them all and weeps upon them. And there seems to be a connection here between um, what happened when Jacob returned to the land and was all afraid of Esau back in chapter 33. Um, And there in verse 4, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. So very much a similar scene going on here. Brothers being reconciled after one has wronged the other, and this kiss is a physical gesture, of course, of peace and of love. And uh, so Pharaoh gets word of all of this, and he tells Joseph, you know, load up some beasts um, and have your father and your household come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. You shall eat the fat of this land. Um, You know, tell them, don't have any concerns about your material possessions, for the best of Egypt is now yours. And, um, and so the sons of Israel, it says, did so. Um, Joseph gives them some wagons as well as, uh, you know, clothes and stuff, of course, showering on Benjamin, uh, much more in excess of what the other brothers got, 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes, uh, loads up 10 donkeys, 10 female donkeys with all kinds of food and sends them. And I love, I love the end of verse 24. Um, as they departed, Joseph said to them, do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> like just no fighting, guys. I know how you are. Um, but, you know, th- there also might be a hint here of um, all is forgiven. And so you don't have to, like, keep rehashing whose fault was what, who suggested what and everything. Just know that you're loved, you're forgiven, and um, and you're coming now to Egypt to live here. And so they go down into Canaan, and um, they initially try to tell Jacob, and it says his heart became numb because he did not believe them. Again, there's this kind of pattern of him not believing what his sons tell him happened in Egypt. Um, But then, once they've told him all the words, and the wagons show up, uh, and the the donkeys and stuff— um, it says that the spirit of Jacob revived. Like, can these guys be telling the truth? And indeed, it is enough, Jacob says. My son, J- Joseph, my son, is still alive, and I will go see him before I die. So he makes this journey, and on his way, on his way to, to Egypt, and he stops at uh, Beersheba. And the significance of this place is that this is where he grew up. This is, was the place of Isaac and Rebekah. Um, that he left so long ago. And uh, when he gets there, he offers sacrifices and worship to the Lord. And God speaks to him in visions there. And uh, it's kind of summed up here, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am. And he said, and God kind of like assures him that this is, this is what um, should happen. I, I am authorizing you to leave the land because Remember that that's been an issue before, that that um, the patriarchs, if that's what you want to call them, going out of the land, the promised land, kind of like suddenly this big question mark pops up 
uh, regarding the in, the future inheritance of the land. But indeed, um, this is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And I don't know if they're thinking this at this time. Like, you know, they know the words that God gave to Abraham that, you know, I will give this land to your offspring, but know for certain that your offspring will be servants in a land not their own. And um, so I don't know if they're connecting the dots there, but God certainly is. Um, There I will make you into a great nation, um, and I myself will be with, I will go with you down into the land of Egypt, just like he assured Jacob he would be with him when he went to Paddan Aram. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So again, whether or not um, they would have understood this as, okay, I guess that thing that God said to Abraham, uh, my grandpa, um, all those years ago, uh, this is finally coming true, or if they're just thinking, you know, short term about it, but God certainly has this under control, and indeed this is the way in which he is going to bring about what he has promised to Abraham. So Jacob sets out from Beersheba. He comes to Egypt with all his offspring, um, his sons, and it says his daughters. Remember how I mentioned when we were talking about Dinah back in chapter 34 that uh, he may have had other daughters as well. Well, here, notice daughters is plural. Um, And so, um, and then you get this tally of all of the people who are going down. Um, all of like the sons of the sons of of Jacob, and they're they're arranged by by um, wives. So you know Leah first, Zilpah second, her maidservant, and then Rachel and her maidservant Bilhah. And uh, it, interestingly, you know if you if you add up the the people that are mentioned, you get seventy people, which is kind of like the ideal number that is used to refer to how many of the people of Jacob went down into Egypt. Um, However, if you look at verse 26, it says there were 66 persons in all. And there's some people go back and forth as to like, well, what's going on here? Um, Clearly the writer can count. So why is he saying it's 66? I think probably the easiest, um, the easiest explanation for that is that it's not counting Jacob himself or Joseph, who's already in Egypt, or Ephraim and Manasseh, um, who are already in Egypt. So the 70 counts the total number of that like first generation in Egypt, whereas the verse 26 gives us how many people actually uh, went down. Um, that is, you know, of course, the, the men that are mentioned, there would have been wives as well. Um, also, I think uh, we should note in verse 26, um, where it says, who, those who were his own descendants, the, the Hebrew literally there is those who came out of his hip or out of his thigh. And remember back in chapter 32 with the wrestling with God episode, uh, as well as with um, the putting the hand under Abraham's thigh, I noted that this is uh, sometimes um, used in the Old Testament to... Um, as, as seemingly as a euphemism for males, a male's uh, sexual reproductivity, I suppose we could say, um, the the thigh. So they came out of his thigh. Let's leave it at that. Then they arrive in G- in Egypt. Probably should note here in verse twenty eight that Judah is ahead of them. So note Judah leading, um, showing the way before them, and um, Joseph goes, he gets his chariot, and he goes to meet his father in Goshen. So this land of Goshen is going to be 
what's known as the Nile Delta. So if you look at the, a map of Egypt, there's like uh, in the north, it's kind of like an inverted triangle. Um, and that's going to be the general region in which the, the people settle. Um, and uh, the, the people of Israel, that is. And, um, you know, it, they, they, here you have the same gestures, right? They fall on each other's necks and, 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 and weep. And it says a good while. And Israel is like, now let me die that I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Obviously, um, can't even imagine what, what this kind of reunion must have, what must have been like. Now, Joseph also instructs, uh, his, his brothers and, um, his, his father, like what to say when they go before, um, Pharaoh, um, because they do still want to maintain, um, a distinct identity, right? Like they don't just want to become assimilated into the Egyptians. And so he tells them to tell them, to tell him your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And he says, in order that you may dwell in the land of ocean of Goshen, because every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Um, Notice there, there's been a mention of like kind of like taboos as to contact with um, these um, uh, Semitic people from the land of Canaan. Remember when they were eating back in chapter 43, verse 32, it notes that the Egyptians didn't eat with them. Um, and here, um, I my understanding of this, this shepherding being an abomination, because it's not as if the Egyptians didn't have any livestock, right, or anybody caring for livestock, like as if Egyptians didn't do that. But um, I've my understanding is that the distinction here is that in Egypt, um, the, the type of livestock that they were particularly into was cattle, whereas um, the, um, the Asiatics, those who come from... Um, you know, uh, from like Canaan, the Levant and all of that, the Semitic peoples, they would bring with them goats and other kinds of animals that um, were not as clean as, or at least as easy to manage as the uh, cattle were. And uh, apparently the goats, goats would affect the uh, some of the waterways and things like that. And so they were kind of viewed as taboo or, or um, almost beneath them. Or like, look at look at these foreigners here with their goats and things like that. So I think that that's what's going on here. Um, Joseph goes in and tells Pharaoh, and he tells him all about the flocks and the herds coming from the land of Canaan. Now they're in the land of Goshen, and um, he presents five of his brothers um, to Pharaoh. They have the conversation with Pharaoh that Joseph has instructed them to have, and um, Pharaoh very generously invites them to dwell in the land of Goshen uh, as planned and to settle there um, and advertises it as the best of the land. And indeed, it is good. It's very well watered. It's it's ideal for what um, they're going to be doing. And so, and he tells them, you know, I could use some guys uh, in charge of my livestock. Um, if you've got anyone, um, uh, Joseph, you haven't failed me uh, you haven't failed me yet, so uh, go ahead and recommend someone for that. So he brings he brings in Jacob uh, next, his father, and it says that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Uh, note it, note here, kind of like a mini version of fulfillment of that initial promise to Abraham: "In you will all the families of the earth be blessed." 
So it's significant that here is Jacob, a, you know, a, a fairly powerful man, um, you know, in Canaan, now standing before the king, who's way more powerful than he is, way more significant internationally and everything than he is, uh, and he's blessing him. So it's important not to miss that. And he asks him how old he is, and he says, the, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, um, and yet they've not attained to the days and the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning, uh, apparently referring to Abraham's 175 years old and Isaac's 180 years old, um, if those numbers are to be read literally, you know. But either way, Jacob appears to be saying, you know, um, I, here I am, an old man, but I'm not nearly as old as uh, the the those who came before me. And he also says this thing here that just like makes us reflect on just his life, where right where he says, "Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life." Um, you know, just Jacob looking back at his life of vacillating between trusting God and not trusting Him. His life has been one of a lot of turmoil and a lot of strife, and um, yeah. So they they give them the land. They um, it says that they dwell in the land of Ramesses. That is an anachronism there. So it, at that time, it wouldn't have been known as the land of Ramesses, given that Ramesses did not reign in Egypt until hundreds of years later. But when the Israelites come out of Egypt, that is what the land is known as. And so anybody writing for at a later date would have been calling this area Ramesses, the area of Ramesses, where he had all these, well, his capital was established up there. Um, okay, let's go to Proverbs 3. So here now we have the um, uh, uh, this, this idea of a son, of a father instructing his son once again, do not keep, forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments, right? Like just because like from your heart, from your inmost being, you know, you should you should do what's right. It shouldn't just be like going through the motions. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Um, in general, that is true. Living wisely does tend to help you to live long and happy. Um, but of course, Proverbs does also does not claim that we should never we shouldn't walk away from Proverbs thinking that this is like the absolute guarantee without exception either. Um, and uh, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And um, uh, so it could be that it's saying that these are characteristics that we should have, but it could also be thought of as these are characteristics that God has, because he's the one who's most often in Scripture referred to as having steadfast love and faithfulness, in Hebrew, chesed ve'emet. Um, and uh, so you know, you know, bind these things around your neck, um, write them on the tablet of your heart, this faithfulness, steadfast love, being true um, to do what is right and, and to love those who are around you. Um, and so you will find good fa- you will find favor and good success in the sight of both God and man. And then we have this very famous passage, trust in Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Um, I think the Bible is very clear that sometimes we don't understand all of the whys as to why um, God wants us to do one thing rather than another, or why he wouldn't just give us everything we want and all the ambitions of our hearts. And following him often does mean 
um, deferring to the Lord. And here he's saying, trust him with all your hearts. Don't lean on your own understanding. Your own understanding will lead you astray. God will not. Um, Think of the Garden of Eden, right? She evaluates the trees. She evaluates the fruit and makes her own call. And we see how that goes. Uh, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh, right? That's the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. And turn away from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Um, And then a word about wealth. Honor Yahweh with your wealth, with your material possessions. Honor the Lord and with the first fruits of all your produce. And if you do, it says, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now, I think we should note that sometimes these blessings, wine and, and um, you know, uh, wheat in the barns are used metaphorically in the Bible. So this isn't necessarily saying like, hey, you want to know how to really become materially wealthy, uh, put some money in the offering plate. Um, but if you want to know what a life is that is truly blessed, that truly, um, that truly experiences God's, God's goodness and truly channels it, then you should do so in a way in which the rubber meets the road, and you should honor him with the material blessings that he gives you, whether that's giving to the poor, giving to your church, giving to missionaries, um, or just having your hand open towards people who need it. Um, Do those things unto God, and you will experience blessing. Okay, let's go now to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. Uh, Here, uh, on the heels of feeding uh, 4,000 people plus women and children, um, we once again encounter the Pharisees, who once again are asking for a sign. And uh, this is, as I've noted before, is, is kind of rich, because they have asked for signs repeatedly. Um, and Jesus's response here, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign, is also something that we've already encountered. He's already said this to them in chapter uh, 13, verse 39, okay? Uh, and the same thing, no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. And there, again, I, I don't, I think that there's, it's a little complicated if, if we wanted exactly to write out, like, what is the sign of Jonah? There does appear to be a connection there with the three days in the in the fish and the three days in the earth um, uh, for Jesus. But, but more than that, I think the cumulative uh, message of the book of Jonah, the, the fact that this is written to you, Israelites, um, is what's functioning here. Because um, a lot of what the Pharisees are struggling with in the ministries of Jesus and and, and coming up against has to do with the kind of stuff that Jonah was upset about, namely the the idea that we have a merciful God who wants to save those who have wronged you. And here is Jesus walking around with a tax collector, walking around with with people whom they believe have made their their people unclean, um, sinners, adulterers, things like that, people who are turning and becoming Christ's disciples. Jesus has had to tell them it is not the those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. Um, and yet the Pharisees are upset, and, and they keep looking for these signs, asking for these signs. And Jesus, and I, I just keep emphasizing this, Jesus has 
this request for signs is almost a response to having seen signs, right? It's not as if they haven't seen what Jesus has has been doing. And um, so, yeah, Jesus's message here is kind of like, you want signs? Here, Here's a sign, the sign of Jonah. Um, think about that. And, um, and then the disciples um, realize that they don't have any bread, and Jesus sees this as a teachable moment. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, now, I should probably mention, in chapter 16 here, uh, we do have the introduction of the Sadducees here, which is another uh, party within first century Judaism. So the Pharisees are a uh, kind of like um, a group, I guess, uh, I don't want to call them like a secret society. They're not there. It's, but, this, but the Pharisees, it, Pharisaism is mainly a lay movement. Okay, it's mainly a movement among like uh, regular people who tend who will probably have other jobs and things like that. You can recall that Paul was a Pharisee and also was a tent maker, um, or I should say Saul. He was Saul when that, when that happened. Um, and the Pharisees were very concerned about things like purity because, in, in fact, they wanted to live up to the standards that that priests almost would have had to. Because they thought that that was their key to getting the their people's key to getting back in favor with God, and so when people violated those ceremonial aspects of the law, they got pretty uptight. You know, they they kind of turned into this quasi police, this uh, uh, to to supervise their fellow Jewish people, and so you could see why Jesus's behavior particularly angered the Pharisees. The Sadducees was more of a, an elite group. These were those who. Um, to the the well, the high priest, the priestly family, uh, was were Sadducean, um, and Sadducees had have a bunch of quirks about them, but they tend to have a much more worldly based uh, faith as opposed to a belief in like heaven and angels and a resurrection of the dead. They tended to be skeptical about these things, and um, that's that's um laid clear to us in in the scriptures. So so Jesus tells them to be careful of their leaven um and um and but they kind of miss the symbolic meaning of what he's saying uh because they're just saying oh we brought no bread how are we going to beware of leaven from the Pharisees and Sadducees we don't get what you mean here and Jesus tells them oh you of little faith why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread um, and then points them to the the feeding of the of the uh, of the five thousand, and then of the four thousand, and then caps that off again. So beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In other words, you've been with me and have seen that um, what I can do, and you've been part of what I'm doing. Remember, there were twelve baskets left over, and the disciples are the ones who went and handed out the food to everyone. Okay, they're kind of these intermediary, almost like a almost like a priestly role there, and um, and so know what's been going on. You guys have eyes to see what have what has been happening. You need to beware of these guys. Um, they're they're not good apples. Um, and so that's that's his message to his disciples there in the first 12 verses. And then then we have an, an, another important passage. Um, Jesus gets them alone at Caesarea Philippi and says, 
starts talking about his identity, things that have been hinted at up until now. You know, different people are calling him different things. Truly, you are the son of God, son of David, right? Um, things like that. And Jesus, it's time to teach his disciples about that. And so he says, who do the people say the son of man is? And, uh, and they give their answer to that. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter kind of speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Uh, There we have another theme we've seen in Matthew, that it is the Father who reveals truth about God. It's not just us figuring things out, okay? This is actually revealed to you. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now that passage is sort of enigmatic, and it's a little difficult to know exactly what Jesus means by it. Um, uh, Namely, what is the rock? Okay, so there's clearly a, a, a play on words here. So Peter's name, Petros, means rock. And this is what, and and so literally he says, sue Petros, kai epe taute te Petra, and on this rock. So you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. Okay. And um, so is this rock, and I don't think it's nearly as clear as some people make it out to be that, that, uh, that, that, the rock there is supposed to mean Peter. On on Peter, I will build this church. The rock could easily be uh, his confession or the truth about Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. The fact of the matter is, is Jesus makes a pun here, and I don't see any clear way to discern it going one way or the other. Um, on the other hand, a good case can be made that Peter is the one upon whom the church will be built. He's being selected here by Jesus as a kind of first among equals, and he is the rock upon upon it. And and um, in favor of this is the fact that he says to Peter, to you, and that is a single you, uh, to you I will give the keys of the kingdom, um, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be bound in heaven. Uh, those are those are singular use their pronouns there in the Greek, and so he seems to be talking directly to Peter there. Um, so I think on balance, the um, on balance, I think um, it it favors the idea that the the interpretation that says that Peter is indeed the rock. Now, anyone familiar with Roman Catholicism knows that. Um, a, a large part of their understanding of who the Pope is and the Pope's significance is built on this. And their idea, in essence, is this. <clears throat> they believe that Peter went and founded the church in the city of Rome and uh, was Rome's first bishop and bore this authority that Jesus bestowed upon him here as the bishop of Rome. Note that nowhere in Scripture do we see that Jesus, that Peter is indeed the Bishop of Rome, and the historical support of it, as is acknowledged by Roman Catholic historians too, 
is extremely shaky. In fact, it's very unlikely, actually, that Peter was the Bishop of Rome, but Catholics believe that he was. And then they believe that any that his successors, that those bishops who succeed him as the bishops of Rome, um, bear his same apostolic authority. So the things that Jesus is saying to Peter here, Catholics believe also apply to the popes who are selected to be um, uh, the Peter's successors. Um, now, I do not think, I think that we can totally say with this passage, Peter is the rock, he's the one who's given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and put the brakes on there and say, none of that other stuff that Catholics believe follow from that, right? Like, especially the, the well, a lot of it, there's historically dubious things in there. And so, so an acknowledgement that Peter is the rock in this passage is not a concession to Roman Catholic theology. Uh, if anything, I, I think it speaks against the soundness of their whole system that they really do have to go beyond what Scripture says, significantly beyond what it says. Even the concept that apostolic authority is transmitted to people who hold the same office, uh, where are you going to get? Where are you going to get that from? Um, it's just there's there's yeah okay I could go on about that for a while and so I think that it's just as we look in the scriptures Peter is kind of like the first among equals he's often speaking he's the one who speaks on the day of Pentecost uh, he's the one who con who 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 whom the Lord uses to convert the household of Cornelius the first real move to the Gentiles okay and he remains pretty prominent throughout the New Testament. Uh, that's not to say that he's infallible, right? I mean, Paul rebukes him in the beginning of uh, Galatians. He tells us about this. Um, we see him working in concert with the other apostles and making decisions in concert with them. Um, and then, of course, this this what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And I don't, I don't think it's this idea where where. Peter's supposed to be making these calls and like determining doctrine out of whole cloth and things like that. I, I think what it simply means is what you do on earth has eternal consequences. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Um, importing ideas into binding and loosing that are way more specific than that I think gets us into a lot of trouble. And and in fact, this language of binding and loosening occurs just a, ch um, a chapter and a half later in chapter 18, verse 18, where he's talking about forgiving one another, right? And kind of the process of what we are supposed to do if someone's sinned against us and and uh, and especially if, if they don't hear you, if they're unwilling to listen to you. So, um, and, and, there, and there, that's not like, Peter determining who's going to heaven or anything, or making up doctrine and then that becoming canon, uh, you know, on the level of scripture or anything. No, it's just saying that, like, these things that you do, your church life, um, the thing, the way you treat other believers, these are, um, these are things that echo into eternity. Okay, thank you for joining me. Um, I look forward to tomorrow with you. And until then, God bless you. Have a great day. Okay, bye-bye.